Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Let's count to 10, but let's do it in Greek. That's what quants do. Matthew Rothman, formerly ginormous at Lehman Brothers, it wasn't his fault they went down in flames, is now at Credit Suisse. He's head of global quantitative equity research and really has major cred out of Chicago in the Greek letters and trying to figure out in this quiet time of low volatility what to do. Joining us well, taking notes, Gabriel Santos of J.P. Morgan. Matt, wonderful to have you uh, with us Thank here you. this morning. I want to do a look back of 10 years. We all read Fooled by Randomness. We read this, that, other quant stuff. I think of Kent Osborne and Binomial Clouds and Bob Dot Dot. Have we learned anything? Are we any smarter 10 years down the road than the quants were 10 years ago? We're a lot smarter today than we were 10 years ago. Um, We're really now, I would kind of say, almost in quant 3.0, where 10 years ago we were really in the end of quant 1.0. Fair. Um, We've learned a lot more about how to get out of each other's way. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've learned a lot about trading. Uh, We've learned really what other people know. uh, And really, the world has become so much more digitalized every day. Uh, And so just the levels of data that we have, uh, the machines at our our fingertips are just so much more powerful um, that we've just made a lot of advances. Whether it's 1987 or 1998 or 2007, it's about blown up certitude of hedges or arbitrage, where I've got a constructed trade that blows up, maybe it's leverage or whatever. What is the constructive trade of 2017 that worries you? What worries me is, um, one, there's just been a a rush into quant, and there's almost been a little bit exactly. of, a, of a mania uh, on the belief that of what machine learnings can do can, can do for you uh, and what what it's capable of. I think we need to take a step back and right. really think about okay. where we are and what it can uh, do and can't do. Full editorial, I 100% agree with that statement. And you see the FT article today, which really shows the wall of money going into your world. Nassim Taleb in his anti-fragile talks about stressing and testing the system about robust found through small failures. Are we there yet? Are we more anti-fragile where you've got a greater confidence in the system? I think that what we've really learned was what I learned the first day in my class at the University of Chicago, where Eugene Fama kind of came in and said, everything I'm going to teach you is wrong. It's a model. Right. And we know it's a model. It's not reality. Uh, And I think that most quants are very careful now to understand where their models fail. What worries me is that that becomes a lot harder when you get into the deep learning machines uh, and and artificial intelligence to really understand what your machines don't know if you don't really know what your machines are doing and how they're doing it. Uh, And I think those are the kind of systematic failures that worry me. Matthew, where do you think the next financial crisis will come from? What worries me most about that is that uh, we've been in an area, an era of very low volatility, uh, and in an era of 
uh, particularly low dispersion across returns, which is different than volatility. General volatility can be driven by macro events, uh, and so you can see the VIX spike on macro news, but all stocks uh, may or may not move together at that point. What's really remarkable about this time is that we've seen very low dispersion across returns. Uh, idiosyncratic news, as we kind of call it, or individual stock-specific news, uh, those features are very low, and so that more right. than the VIX uh, being low is what I think leads leads people towards leverage. Um, and so what we really need to see is um, for some kind of orderly pickup in dispersion across returns. Right, but Matthew, what I'm trying to get at, right, is that you're saying that quants are more careful now, so that they learned things in terms of models, that they look and the analysis that they're going through because of financial crisis. But what if we had a financial crisis or a crisis that came from something that we hadn't even thought about? What does that mean for your models, the quants models? It means something bad for everybody's models. Uh, you know, if there's something that none of us can foresee, of course your quant models aren't going to look at it, and of course your fundamental analysts aren't going to get it. Right. Uh, it's bad for everybody. Okay, this is, this is really important, Matthew. Bring up this chart. This is where Gabriel Santos is living every day in the low of the quiet. You can look at any asset class. This happens to be at the VIX in the quiet down to 9.98 uh, right now on the VIX. Is it harder for you to have certitude about fancy quant systems given dampened volatility in that all of these, are, you know, the media talks about them as linear functions and straight lines, and you and I know they're not. Is there almost a, a risk of a convexity, an acceleration? of outcomes and bad outcomes because of where the VIX is right now? You know, the VIX is very important to look at um, and to understand volatility, but it doesn't measure the volatility that concerns quants the most, which is that we want right. to look at the dispersion among returns. So if everything is moving together, exactly. that makes it very hard. That's different than time series volatility or macro shock volatility. And um, so I'm less concerned with macro shock volatility, but I'm really concerned about if you have a huge dispersion for some reason that was to kick up in re right. across returns. Okay, well, then one final question on this. We're going to geek out here. On the back end of the time series function is an epsilon. Gabriella learned this in Pennsylvania. Some of us struggle <laughs> through it with the CFA. On the back end of a linear function, thank you, James Hamilton, out at San Diego, is this epsilon. Do you have a clue, or does she have a clue, or does Jamie Dimon have a clue, or, or Neil Sass have a clue where the epsilon is in this system today? <sighs> You know, we do have some clues on where the epsilons are. Um, if you're a good quant, you are stressing your models exactly. all, all the time. Fragile. Exactly. Uh, and you're trying to understand what doesn't, what don't you know, uh, and that is what is most right. dangerous. Uh, and that's true whether you're okay. a quant or not. Now, take the brilliance of this, Gabriella, over to your world. You have to explain to pools of money the Rothman world. How do you take his world over to mom and pop with a pot of money or an institution with a pot of money? So a couple of the concepts we were discussing, first of all, in terms of volatility, uh, that's a conversation we've been having a lot with, as you call it, the mom and pop mm -hmm. investor. Um, our view on low volatility um, is that this is a very different world uh, than it's been for the last six years. Uh, volatility mm -hmm. in terms of economic data is much lower than it used to be. You now have a much better, much more solid global economy. And the volatility in, in earnings has right. improved as well. So we, we would, this low volatility to us 
just makes sense. And that's something we've been trying to explain to our investors. Okay, this has been fabulous. We're going to put this conversation with Ms. Santos and Dr. Rothman out on iTunes on the podcast today. This is extraordinary. And I'll throw some books out on social media as well to keep up, including Sheldon Natenberg's classic on the Greek uh, letter. James Trevitas, among other things, was an admiral in the Navy. And like all people going up the food chain, he even spoke to Marines, heaven forbid, on destroyers, on aircraft carriers, and even spoke to other parts of our military operations. Uh, Mr. Trevitas has moved on to international relations at the Fletcher School of Tufts University. His book, The Leader's Bookshelf, The Leader's Bookshelf is my book of the summer. I can't say enough about it. It is just absolutely spectacular, giving you a wide set of books. Admiral, good morning. Great to hear your voice, Tom. How's it going? It's going very good. In the back of The Leader's Bookshelf, you spend more time on a general from Brighton, Massachusetts, than anybody in your book, maybe with the possible exception of Mattis. But there's a beautiful point there where you have Kelly of Boston and Mattis with 700 or 3,000 books in their library. General Kelly is a reader. The president is not. What will General Kelly teach the president of the United States? Well, going back to the book, The Leader's Bookshelf, I would suggest that uh, John Kelly pull the book out and talk to the president about three books that are in there. One is uh, by his national security advisor, uh, General H.R. McMaster, it's dereliction of duty. And I think Kelly needs to say to the president, Mr. President, my intention is to speak truth to your power, uh, as the Joint Chiefs of Staff did not do during the war in Vietnam. The second one is Doris Kearns Goodwin's team of rivals and the idea that uh, we can have rivals in this White House, but at the end of the day, it has to be a team not just a team of rivals. And then thirdly, I think the book that uh, Donald Trump ought to read is, and this may surprise you, A Connecticut Yankee in King yeah. Arthur's Court uh, for innovation, for change, because he's got to uh, change the way he's doing business at this point. Now, uh, General Kelly, even with all of his characteristics, may not be able to get the president to read those books, but he can talk to him about them. He can thrive on those principles and hopefully... Right bring some order out of chaos in the White House. Alongside, Ivanka Trump uh, has been quoted as saying she's thrilled to be alongside the Marine General. Tell me about command and control in the world of Stavridis or Kelly. (laughs) What does that actually mean when the media talks about generals coming in with command and control? Translate that. So when I was the Supreme Allied Commander of NATO, I had control of hundreds of thousands of forces. And the one thing you learn early on in a military career is that there can be only one chief of staff. My chief of staff, by the way, Tom, was a German four-star general. And you haven't seen order and discipline, so you've seen a German (laughs) general as a chief of staff. Um, And I think John Kelly knows this equally well. He was commander of Southern Command while I was over there in Europe. And he will seek to drive home the principle that no one stands alongside the chief of staff. That just doesn't work. And we saw it blow up already with the Priebus Bannon arrangement. There's only one way to run a staff, and if Ivanka Trump wants to be on the staff 
and not just be an ex officio advisor. That's a different role. But if she wants to be on the staff, she reports to the keyword here, chief of staff. Admiral Therese, let me ask you a question here about how you might approach this job. Something that's been highlighted here in recent days is that uh, John Kelly doesn't have a whole lot of experience dealing with Congress. A lot of what the chief of staff does is finesse the president's agenda with the legislative agenda on Capitol Hill. Uh, if you were in his shoes, how would you uh, foster or, or, or build that relationship or better that relationship yeah. between the White House and the Congress? Great point, David. Um, one uh, little noticed thing about John Kelly, I'll add to the conversation, is that he spent two years on Capitol Hill as a one-star Marine general in charge of the U.S. Marine Corps' relationships with the Congress. So he has traveled, uh, he has interacted, he is well-known up there, not as a political figure, but as a military figure. So the key for him, your point, is that he has to be able to translate his previous role on Capitol Hill of representing the Marine Corps to now representing the President of the United States and the executive branch. He needs to talk to the people on the Hill, use the personal relationships he has, but convince them that he can make that transition. And I think he can. I interviewed him shortly after he became the Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, and I was struck by his sense of duty. Uh, he told me that he hadn't met the president before their first meeting uh, after Donald Trump had been elected president. He was asked to do the job right after that. Uh, as I said, a, a real sense of duty pervaded uh, his conversation about what led him to take that that job. From your your relationship with him, knowing him, help us understand why he would take this job. This seems like a real dog's dinner uh, in a way to become <laughs> White House chief of staff at this point. Uh, well, I've known John Kelly for over 40 years. We were uh, young lieutenants banging around on carrier Forrestal back in the late 70s. Um, and he is all about duty. He comes out of a, a tough neighborhood in Boston where you stand with your friends, you work for someone. It matters. The relationships you have uh, are who you are. So it is a dog's breakfast for him to uh, shift the mealtime slightly. And I think that, <laughs> that General Kelly took the job because he thinks he can help the country move yeah. forward. His whole life has been about that. Well, I, I agree with that on duty. And of course, the, you know, some of the critics have said the president was born on third base and General Kelly was out in the grandstands in the cheap seats of Fenway Park. <laughs> um, on page 125 of your book, and again, folks, The Leader's Bookshelf, my book of the summer, I'd also note that Stravitas doesn't stop writing every day. Sea Power's jaw-dropping view of our oceans as well. But Admiral... You've got uh, the chief of staff of the Army, Ordinero, writing about George Marshall, who was of generation before us, their hero. Yeah. And one of the, yeah. the, the, the features here is speak your mind. George Marshall yeah. on speak your mind. How does, any, how does someone with a charm of General Kelly actually sit the commander in chief down and go, no, sir, this is how we do it? Can you envision that's going to occur? I do, Tom, and he'll do it exactly the way you just said it, but he'll do it privately. It will not be leaked. You and I aren't going to be talking about the details of those conversations. And I think General Kelly will establish a rapport with the president that allows him to uh, take the bark off the tree, as Don Rumsfeld calls it, and really have that conversation. If he does, he'll succeed. If he cannot do that, he will fail. And I'd say there's a better-than-even chance that he'll succeed, but not much over a better-than-even chance. 
Let me get you to react to, to the announcement that was made on Twitter last, last week, a policy announcement from the president. Tom and I were on air as these three tweets came out, the president saying that uh, transgender individuals will not be allowed to serve in any capacity in, in the U.S. military. I wonder if you could just react to how that announcement was handed down and uh, if, if you were a commander at this point, what you would make of, of, uh, of that directive communicated in uh, three, three tweets of 140 characters each. Yeah, I, I think it would be extremely charitable to call it a policy at all, David. Yeah. Um, it really was a series of disconnected tweets. You've watched both the uniform military and the Department of Defense effectively walk away from it uh, and say, hey, if you are transgender and you are on active duty, you're going to continue serving until the policy actually changes. It's a pretty good example of why Jim Mattis took the right course of action when confronted with this set of decisions, and these are decisions that have to be made about uh, whether we perform surgeries, whether we take people as they are, what, what are the specifics of this. And General Mattis said, look, I need six months to figure this out. He's in the middle of doing that. Mm. So for the president to try and preempt something yeah. uh, this sensitive uh, makes no sense. And I think, frankly, those tweets have been relegated to the tweet bin of history at this the point, and you're going to see the military. You're going to see the military mm-hmm. figure it out. Come to the president, regular order, make a recommendation. Then we'll have a policy going forward. That's how you do business. And James Trevides, of course, at Tufts, the Fletcher School. His new book is Sea Power: A History and Geopolitics of the World Oceans. The opening of it is absolutely spectacular. Young Trevides translating tweets on the deck of the destroyer as it goes out of San Diego Harbor, and he had to take his Dramamine. No, I'm kidding. Anyway, Stravitas will be with us. The Sea Power is a wonderful new book, a surprising book on our oceans, and, of course, the Leaders Bookshop. We will continue with Admiral Stravitas much more, of course, on international relations and your Washington. This is Bloomberg. Yesterday afternoon, Admiral Stavridis, uh, we had a moment in Foggy Bottom we haven't had in a while. The Secretary of State waltzed out to a podium and spoke to reporters for a pretty extended period of time. He marked uh, the end of six months uh, in that office. And one of the things that he talked about uh, was the U.S. relationship uh, with Russia. And he said that he talked to President Putin and to Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister, recently and told them that while the relationship is bad between the U.S. Uh, and Russia, indeed it could get uh, worse. The Secretary of State scheduled to meet with Mr. Lavrov in Manila, I believe, uh, later this week. Give us your sense of, of the state of this relationship now and, and uh, your prescription for what uh, Secretary Tillerson uh, could do to, to, to mend things a, a little bit here going forward. First of all, it's uh, good to see the Secretary out and about and actually conducting some public diplomacy. He needs to do a lot more of that than he has been, and that's uh, salutary. In terms of the relationship with Russia, David and Tom, we're at the lowest point since the end of the Cold War. I'd say that uh, we have still some further bottom below us, however. And what we need to be doing is confronting Russia where we have to, things like Syria, uh, where they support a brutal dictator, Ukraine, where they've annexed Crimea, the cyber intrusions above all into our own electoral process. We have to confront where we must. But we should cooperate where we can. We ought to look for some zones of cooperation. At the moment, they are few and far between. But if I were the Secretary of State, I would put cooperation in Afghanistan, cooperation in the Arctic, cooperation on counterterrorism, and cooperation in counter-narcotics at the top of my list. So you can at least keep a dialogue open, confront where you must, cooperate where you can, 
And over time, let's hope that this Russian investigation is completed. We need to get that behind us, find out what happened, respond to it before we can really repair this relationship. We had news uh, at the beginning of the week here, Russia expelling or uh, requesting that uh, two-thirds of our diplomatic staff in Russia uh, leave that country. Aside from the symbolism of that, and sure enough, there, there, there is a lot of it there, what are the consequences of that, this, this back and forth with regard to diplomatic personnel? Uh, it will further degrade relations between the countries. It's unfortunate that it occurs just as we begin to move our new ambassador to Russia, very competent uh, individual, uh, John Huntsman, former governor, former ambassador to China. Uh, he's moving toward Moscow now, but he'll arrive with uh, a gutted staff, and that oh. is going to create real challenges yeah. for him as he tries to get his feet on the ground, Tom. We could talk for three hours this morning, Admiral. Let me ask you about David Ignatius, the Washington Post this morning, with just a scathing and interesting and smart op-ed on China. He talks about how the Secretary of Commerce has been humiliated by the White House. The White House was strong harsh language on trade, on sanctions. And then the Secretary of Defense has to deal with the same dialogue of threats to the Korean. How does a pro like you synthesize the bellicose nature of a White House that even defeats two visible and principal cabinet officers? What I'm really worried about with China, Tom, the big prize in this uh, in this relationship between the United States and China is the South China Sea, which is full of hydrocarbons, which is the one piece of the puzzle China doesn't have. They don't have oil. They don't have natural gas. They want control of those shipping lanes. This is a vast body of water yeah. the size of the Gulf of Mexico. And we're going to twist and turn over it in this relationship. The White House has got to construct a fundamental strategy for how we're going to approach China because China is playing the long game, and they're going to succeed well, quickly, if we don't. Matt, does this start with the Philippines? I mean, how do you how do you develop a dialogue with the Philippines and Mr. Duterte? I would put Mr. Duterte in the icebox at the moment. We're just not going to get anywhere with the Philippines okay. while he's there. We okay. ought to be focused instead on Vietnam and Malaysia, the two other principal nations okay. around that South China Sea. Never enough time. Thank you so much. I can't say enough about his two books. Sea Power on Your Oceans. It is illuminating. And my book of the summer by James Travitas and Manning Hensel, The Leader's Bookshelf. I just rave about it. It's just a fabulous, fabulous book. Throw it at every single bored kid at home and say, shut up and read some of the books uh, in this book. That's what John Tucker did this summer uh, with his kids. My colleague Alex Steele sitting down with Lloyd Blankfein and Michael Bloomberg. Here is Alex. Lloyd, tell us why we're here in Baltimore today. We're here in Baltimore to um, to attend a graduation of our uh, first cohorts in our program, 10,000 Small Businesses, which is something, uh, which is a program that educates kind of a mini MBA, if you will, for established 
but established small business people who are on the threshold, who have the potential for explosive growth, and we provide a lot of education, mentorship, in some cases financing, to get them over that hump and to have them uh, grow and then to hire people and to get on that virtuous cycle of more hiring, more employment, therefore more small businessmen get their products bought, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, it's, uh, it's the 15th. Uh, example of a program that we've done in 14 other cities around the country, and it's been very successful for us. Yeah, 6,300 uh, graduates. But for the first time, Mike, Bloomberg Th- Philanthropies and Goldman is going to usher another $10 million uh, to the fund really to promote in Baltimore. If you had this when you were starting out, what would that have been like for you? Well, um, I might got, have been successful. Might have been successful. I mean, you know, I got this good guy. training at Solomon Brothers. But the funny thing, we're doing, we're copying to some extent Goldman's 10,000 small businesses with mayors. So we've had a bunch of program program where we bring in mayors and train them. We do it joint with Harvard University, the K School and the B School help train. In the end, it's management that makes these organizations work, whether it's a company or a uh, government or even your family. Somebody has to be in charge and know how to bring people and make them work together and bring them along and train them. But small businesses, the 10,000 small businesses, uh, reaches out to people who've already started their business. And now they've got something going. Now they need some management training. And Bloomberg Philanthropies is happy to partner with them. But we're also doing it for uh, cities, mayors who've already been elected and giving them the management skills. Uh, Lloyd, you obviously run an enormous company. But for a small business, what's the hardest part for them? Now, some of it is very similar. I mean, we're all wrestling <clears throat> with regulation, anxiety about whether an investment will be paid back over time, um, you know, what the economic climate is going to be, the risk that you take, uh, limitation of resources. I mean, do you have the bandwidth? Do you have enough people who can help you manage a bigger enterprise than what you have? What are the consequences of it not working out? Uh, the only problem is, is for a small business person, all that's magnified that in many cases it's you, maybe you and your immediate family, maybe you and your immediate family and three employees or ten employees. And so the consequences are much more dramatic. And you know something? At the end of the day, Goldman Sachs has departments to deal with regulation, to deal with planning, to deal with um, uh, assessing the investment return on a capital good that we buy. But in a small business, uh, you, you don't have that. And so what we are trying to do is we're trying to give people um, the, the information, lessons, you know, we have on the various segments that we bring people through. We have things on business planning, negotiation, strategy, how to negotiate with a bank for financing, how to estimate the return profile of, of an investment that you make in your business. And, uh, but what, one thing we do start out with, these are fabulous people. We're already people, we're taking people, as Mike has alluded to, who are already somewhat successful in their mm-hmm. business. Their commitment is established, their ambition is established, their capability is established. They're on the threshold, possibly, of a breakout, and that really is a sweet spot for growth relative to the investment you put in. By getting them over that hump, and in addition to everything else I think we give them, we give them confidence in who they already are and what they've already accomplished. And part of that confidence, Mike, obviously comes from that support, but also it comes from visibility in the economy. And right now that feels like visibility in D.C. And the story that we continually hear is that nothing's going to get done, no change is going to happen. 
Is that the correct story? Well, I don't know what the future is going to hold. The Trump administration's only been in office for six months. Uh, I've always thought that what Trump should focus on is building a team. He's been struggling to do that, but he'll eventually get it right, I, I think, and I hope. And the country needs that. Uh, but uh, the, the bottom line is it's small businesses that are creating most of the job growth in the country. Big businesses are doing okay. Uh, the economy is better than most people thought. The stock market certainly seems to like what's going on. But the future of this country is to create small businesses that will take people from the old industries that will eventually downsize and maybe even disappear as taste change, technology changes, the marketplace changes. And this is where the next group of big businesses will come from. They start out small with somebody that's got an entrepreneurial spirit. At that point, if Goldman Sachs steps in or others and gives them some of the management skills, they can keep growing. And the transition from doing it all yourself to learning how to delegate and bring in other people is the toughest thing for small businesses to do. Giving up some control in return for a depth, a bench, if you will, to uh, continue to grow. That's what Goldman Sachs 10,000 small businesses can really do. And Bloomberg Philanthropies with them and similar program, I keep saying, with the mayors. Uh, and Lloyd, you touched on the other part of it, and that's regulation. Like, you have a whole department that's geared towards that. A small business doesn't really have that opportunity. Um, what's going to be the easiest part of regulation that you feel like would be material uh, for growth and for Goldman? Well, I think, um, you know, the one thing that... that um, you know, people are talking about, you know, the administration, are they going to get things? And, you know, there's some things that are already getting done that you have to say, which is that there's a, a bit of a change in sentiment and attitude. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think the way rules are implemented, the attitude of the new, cl new class of regulators that are coming in. And again, we operate obviously in the financial services, but we're, you know, we're big uh, uh, corporate advisory business sure. and M&A, and so we get involved in every industry, and every industry is regulated, and, and tell you the truth, in this day, a lot more highly regulated than they had been. So I would say that a almost an instantaneous thing, which doesn't need Senate approval, uh, in, in some cases, doesn't need approval, uh, some cases it does, but certainly doesn't need legislation, is just the way um, regulations are implemented, existing laws are implemented, and the attitude towards it. And I think, we're, I think we're already witnessing in some of these industries a change in sentiment. Well, what I find fascinating, here's Goldman Sachs, big company known for being aggressive, phenomenally profitable, successful firm with a great history going back a long ways. And they're focusing on the next generation, small businesses. Mm -hmm. And you can say, what do they have, what do they know about small businesses? Because all businesses, like all cities, they're the same. People need respect and recognition. They need to have a product that people want, whether it's a service or something that physically you can touch. Uh, they need to be able to adjust to, as the world changes, and we want to create jobs. And so uh, what I find fascinating is Goldman's taking all of their resources, or some of them, and working on the next generation's problem. Because some of those, those 10,000 small businesses, someday will be Goldman customers. Mm -hmm. And they're making an investment in the future, which is great for the country. Yeah, and as long as big business goes, you have to keep growing in order to uh, no, make those... But Alex, if I can just elaborate a bit. There's no thought. I mean, these are very small businesses. We're a very institutional firm. A lot of the, the impetus for us is to have and demonstrate on a human scale 
what we do on an institutional scale. You know, everybody who goes, you know, if you go into pharmaceuticals, you really want to find cures for things. Right. And if you are in manufacturing, you know, people have an ethic and a narrative uh, and a sense of purpose that goes beyond making a living. And, you know, people in our industry also, we believe in capitalism and the capital markets, in growth that gets created by finding capital for entrepreneurs and the virtuous circle of people making money and then paying families and they in turn buy products from others and spawn new entrepreneurs and we believe in that and sometimes in our business we can lose sight of the human element of that because we operate on such a governmental or big corporate or big institutional level that you, that you don't see the human scale of things and what makes it so attractive in our firm is not that 30 years from now someone might grow and become a customer. What makes it is that it becomes a validation of really our purpose in life other than the mere fact that we make a good living doing what we do. We really believe, you know, you could do philanthropy and yeah. write a check, and you better write that check every year if it's strictly philanthropy. Right. But if you invest in somebody and you build a business and that is endures and survives and grow. It's not only good for that family that has that business, but also the families get employed about that, and that's the virtuous circle that we believe operates at a huge scale across the country, but we get to see it on a human scale in our 10,000 small business program. Uh, I'd like to welcome our TV and radio viewers. We're here at the Baltimore Center stage with Mike Bloomberg and the CEO of Goldman Sachs, Lloyd Blankfein. Uh, I want to stay in Washington for two seconds. Uh, first is uh, the Volcker Rule. Talking about regulation, Lloyd, we heard that the Office of the Controller of the Currency is now starting the official process where companies like you can go and comment of what you want to see uh, rolled back. Can you help quantify what the Volcker Rule did, like with if, you, if it was still not in place, what your profits would be, like what you want to roll back there? Well, I'd say with the Volcker Rule, look, when they were, when they were trying to, when they were going through financial, um, uh, financial uh, regulation, you could have, you know, you could regulate the amount of capital, you can regulate processes, you can regulate leverage, you can and you can regulate activities. Um, you, you can do this transaction, you can't do that kind of a transaction. What the Volcker rule did was it imposed a, bit, a little bit of a state of mind test. You can do, you could take positions, but they wanted, to, they wanted to damp down speculation. But the line between speculation, which has a word, things very easily that we should all back off of, and market making, i.e. facilitating other people's trading, taking the other side of what your client wants to do, is also a risk-taking principle activity. And the line between the two is very blurry and indistinct. But what the Volcker Rule basically says, in effect, if you are taking positions, points of view, in anticipation or in connection with a specific client operation, that's good. If you're doing it away from that specific, it's not good. But if you're a market maker sitting in a desk, it's very hard to know where that distinction is. Because what really makes a market is a million people all at the same time buying and selling because someone thinks it's going to go down, someone thinks it's going to go up, and then clients join that kind of moving sidewalk that's called a market. And in really in practice, it's been very cumbersome, very hard to do, makes people who sit on trading desks very, very nervous. And I think what it's done is it's really had a dampening effect on liquidity uh, in the marketplace. And I think the regulators appreciate it. By the way, the regulators didn't cause that. The regulators were filling in the regulations of statutes 
But I think, um, I think now that it's been in place for a while and they see how it operates, I think there's a consensus it has to be reexamined. You know, what we have in this country is a problem with employment. We want to create jobs. If you want to create jobs, you have to have banks that have money to invest. Banks make money by taking risk. Now, nobody wants speculation. As Lloyd points out, it's very hard to tell the difference between investment and speculation. After the fact, you can look back. If it didn't work, it was speculation. If it did work, it was. But, but nobody knows in advance what to do. Yeah. And so what we want to do is make sure that the industry can't get in trouble the way it did back eight years ago. But nevertheless, it doesn't pull back and stop taking the risks that would generate the capital that let us expand our economy, give everybody the ability to feed their family, give, create monies for curing diseases and advancing art mm-hmm. and all of sure. those things that we want. And whether or not this piece of regulation goes too far, or too, that's Lloyd's expertise. Well, some of the rules are so obscure yeah, it's that it has a tell. chilling effect yeah. on activity. So we only have a couple more minutes left. So, Lloyd, I want to ask you a question about Goldman Sachs' specific business. Uh, the question after the quarter was uh, your FIC business. How can something not be wrong with FIC after the last two quarters? Well, we didn't make as much money, so that was, that was, that was wrong. First of all, we have... Many, you know, we have a, we're a diversified business group, and everyone performed very well, so well that we actually did well as a firm. Our ROE, return on equity, is doubled, is still for the six months double digit uh, ROE. That being said, we didn't perform well in FIC. FIC is a risk business, we don't always perform well. That being said, other people who are other firms who are operating in the same environment did better than us, uh, and so we are on the balls of our feet, you know, we're of course concerned about it. In my 35 years doing this, there have been long, there have been periods long, a lot longer than this period where we've underperformed only to outperform. It's been very, very newsworthy, not because we're a chronic underperformer, but because we've been a chronic outperformer. That being said, we underperformed, we know, we know what we have to do. And uh, we're doing it, and it's a big, uh, it's a, it's, it's an execution matter for us. And guess what? That's what we do. So execution seems to me like it's cyclical. There are many saying that there's a structural problem in that the commodities business, because a lot of the other guys dumped theirs. You've stood by yours. Uh, you have to rethink that view now. Well, we've all cut back a lot because we had to meet the environment. But the fact of the matter is, if we were simply bigger and had more invest in more assets, we would have made more money. That's why I tell you it's an execution issue, because we should have, the expectation is we would do better, because historically we have, and we really haven't. And we know there's several reasons in retrospect that we can look at and say, gee, we may have slipped up. We tend to be overly weighted in our business to a client base, which is a terrific client base, which we'll never abandon, but we're disproportionately involved in trading kind of clients who trade a lot, let's say hedge funds and other things. And again, we're an investment bank. The more corporate banks tend to have much more business with corporates and others. That's something that we should fix. We shouldn't have let it get that disproportionate, but we did. We'll fix it. Some of the products we tend to focus on, we are in the commodities business. Commodities has been in recession. And very few of the other banks that are compared to us are in that business. Well, if you look out and about and you look at other firms that transact in commodities, commodity firms, oil companies, that's been in a bit of a recession. That's a cyclical matter. Do I think that oil is always going to be this price and within $3 of this price for a long time? And that's No, I, I don't think so. But still, 
you have to scale it to the environment that we're in. So whether it's the, pro, you know, the kinds of things that we trade, we have to focus on, whether it's the people we serve, we should be serving everybody and not a disproportionately more focused base, and we're working on it. But I'll tell you, we've been, I, I can't say that we're right all the time, because uh, we're obviously not, um, but I will tell you, we have a good reputation for resilience and adaptation, and that really is our core uh, skill set. Uh, the markets are yeah. always changing, but never that dramatically. I've been watching Goldman Sachs since I came to New York in 1966, where they offered me my first job, and instead I went to Solomon Brothers. This is a firm that has changed with the times. There's certainly been down years, there's up years, and that sort of thing. But they're still around, and if you go back and look at the list of companies that were in this business in 1966, 95% of them have gone. And okay, so I mean, you can Lloyd. sit here and complain about one quarter. Like Bloomberg right on. there. Look, he's but, terrific. Um, but, 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 go ahead. That's true. No, but also, you know, you sit here, I mean, I, look, I've gone through the... Are you going to yell at me through, like Jamie Dimon on the JP Morgan call? No, no. Go is that what's going to happen No, right no. Now? Go through the financial. <laughs> this is, we're sitting here with, a, you know, again, for the year so far, a double-digit ROE, investment, you know, mergers and acquisitions, number one, doing great in equities. Our investing businesses are doing great. Our asset management business and a slow time for, for active managers is growing assets consistently. There's a ton of things. Everything is going well, but the, but but I do agree that um, I, believe me, I'm not uh, I'm not. You know, none of us are hysterical about this, and but we're focused on it. And I'm sure you're going to tell him that the solution to his problem to fix what more he says terminals. Right, more terminals and more other services from Bloomberg. It's obvious. More terminals. Well, obviously that's the number one. But uh, to wrap up really quickly, uh, part of the reason also is you wind up seeing a lot of uh, Goldman employees now in D.C. I'm not going to ask Lloyd that, but Mike, I wanted to get your take on if you had Gary Cohen at the Fed, uh, Steve Mnuchin in there. Is that a good thing for you? Do you like to see the Wall Streeters doing that? Does Gary that Cohen, difference? I know very well. He's a very competent guy. Steve Mnuchin, I've met him once or twice. His father used to be a good friend of mine when he was a competitor at Goldman. The fact that Goldman tra- has these people that government keeps wanting to take says something about the kind of people that Goldman hires and the kind of people and, and what they learn at Goldman. And a lot of them have records, if you go back, particularly on the financial side, that is really impressive of these people, Goldman alumni, who've done enormous things for this country, including, incidentally, Paulson and Steele when they went and bailed out the country in the right. crisis. It, Bob Goldman Bob has an Bob awful Bob lot to be proud of of what Whitehead. they've done for this. Yeah, let me, uh, you didn't ask me, but I'll say I'm enormously proud of the Goldman people that went in there. I think they're very, very capable. Uh, very capable. Um, and um, I think they've done that at an enormous personal sacrifice to yeah. themselves. And we should, uh, you know, I, I support them totally. I, and, you know, we miss them, but they're doing a lot for us because of what they're doing for the country. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.